This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. With clips today from markfiore.com, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Bugle, A Best of the Left Activism Update, The Young Turks, The Progressive, Counterspin, and Le Show. And a note for our listeners, this episode discusses elements of U.S. foreign policy and is therefore not fit for polite company. Explosive employment! Greetings, maggots! You are about to leave your civilian life of high unemployment and begin a new life of explosive employment! Cuts to military and defense contracting budgets mean fewer jobs, so it naturally follows that increasing those budgets means more jobs! Prepare yourself for a $2 trillion explosion! Remember, government spending on sissy civilian jobs programs does not work. Government spending on military and defense contracting budgets works and leads to jobs. You will be employed as builders or operators of things that shoot, blow up, fire, zap, transport, fly, float, or flatten. You will be deployed to places like Iran, Syria, Somalia, whatever a stand, and wherever there are jobs to be had. If bombing Iran means jobs, invading and occupying Iran means more jobs. I repeat, civilian stimulus does not work. Building infrastructure at home weakens our ability to bomb and rebuild infrastructure abroad. Do not stand in the way of explosive employment. Why grow the deficit with a government job at an inner city school when you can employ and deploy the entire inner city? Explosive employment, because war is job one. Now get out there and explode! I'm, I'm Mitt Romney and this is socialism I can support. Here in the United States, countless publications provoke offense. Like me, the majority of Americans are Christian, and yet we do not ban blasphemy against our most sacred beliefs. As president of our country and commander-in-chief of our military, I accept that people are going to call me awful things every day. And I will always defend their right to do so. President Obama speaking today at the UN here in New York. One of those times on the presidential campaign trail when you get that advantage of incumbency thing. Leader of the free world standing at the lectern at the UN with all the amazing green marbles, speaking as head of state, addressing other heads of state, getting to talk about yourself as commander in chief. And although the president was not campaigning at the UN today, there's really nothing like those optics for the guys who are running to replace him. Still, though, they're, they're doing what they ought to be doing. Mitt Romney today working airport rope lines in Ohio. Paul Ryan also in Ohio this week. Here's the killer. President Obama, just the other day, he said on TV that I can't change Washington from the inside. <laughs> why do we send presidents to the White House in the first place? Isn't that why we send presidents to Washington, to change Washington? This is apparently the new thing that Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan are trying to turn into a thing. That President Obama said it's hard to change Washington from the inside. Mitt Romney is on the record saying exactly the same thing on the presidential campaign trail, but apparently they want it to be a scandal that President Obama said the exact same thing that Mitt Romney said, which of course is ridiculous. Uh, but, but I highlight that speech from Paul Ryan in Ohio yesterday for a reason other than the hypocrisy of the dumb changing Washington line. And the reason I highlight it is because Paul Ryan's new stump speech, which he is airing out this week, is now tentatively branching out into foreign policy, kind of. I mean, turn on the TV, and it's not, it's, it reminds you of 1979 Tehran, but they're burning our flags and capitals all around the world. 
They're storming our embassies. We've lost four of our diplomats. And what is the signal that our government is sending the rest of the world? It reminds you of 1979. See, Paul Ryan wants to look like President Obama is like one-term Democratic President Jimmy Carter. And so, therefore, in that little pageant, Mitt Romney would be cast as Ronald Reagan, which is funny no matter how you feel about Ronald Reagan. But it's notable that Paul Ryan is even trying in a campaign that has been up to this point unwilling and sometimes unable to even engage basically on the issue of America in the larger world. He's finally trying to do it. I mean, they've been willing to turn foreign calamities and anti-American incidents into political fodder when they can. But in terms of what they're going to do on even just, say, the issue of the war we're in right now, they've really been unwilling to engage. Maybe this means they'll start. So far, I mean, famously, Mr. Romney didn't even mention the war in Afghanistan at all in his acceptance speech. He explained that in speeches like that, you don't go through a laundry list. You talk about things that are important. And the war wasn't important to him. But it's not just specifically Afghanistan. I mean, here's another one. If you go to Mitt Romney's official website right now and you type the word drones into the search box on the website because you want to know what Mitt Romney's position is on the use of drones, you will find three results. Three. One result is Mr. Romney criticizing President Obama after a drone crashed in Iran. Uh, then there's a policy paper criticizing the Obama administration for talking about drones to news outlets like the New York Times. And finally, you have one of Mr. Romney's surrogates applauding the president for killing Osama bin Laden and generally for using drones. So if you want to know what Mitt Romney would do with America's post-9-11 policy of killing people in other countries we are not technically at war with by using flying killer robots to do it, the answer is that he also thinks killing bin Laden was a good idea, he wouldn't talk to the New York Times about drones, and he wouldn't crash one in Iran. Those are apparently his big ideas on the subject. Any questions? It is days like this when you realize that however important this presidential campaign is and however important this decision is that we as a country have to make between these two candidates, our politics are essentially failing right now. Our politics are essentially impotent now as a tool for debating vexing moral strategic policy questions like this one. Choosing between candidates is supposedly the way we choose between policies and really important things that affect our country, including national security. But our politics have been allowed to shrink to the point where if one side doesn't want to talk about foreign policy and the use of military force while we are using it, then we're just not going to debate that as a country. Let people in Washington figure it out. We're not going to give any input. A new report out today from researchers at Stanford and NYU says that our secret drone policy, which we've been implementing for the better part of a decade, may be radicalizing the residents of a nuclear-armed country with a very large and restive population and a weak central government. We're really not going to debate that at all. That's not a policy matter that's worth some national discussion. No competing ideas up for discussion on this about maybe a change in course. I mean, this is what the Democratic president is doing. The Republican Party has no competing ideas on this at all. Nothing to say? With this policy, due process, that we afford people who we kill using this particular means of killing, the due process ultimately consists of the President of the United States making the call. Kill or don't kill. This is a remarkable thing that we are doing purely on the President's say-so, but we are in the process of picking who's going to be the next President. We're not even asking where these two men stand on that issue and how they'd use that power, or if they think they would legitimately have that power, whether that power should actually exist. If we're not going to ask these questions now, then when exactly are we going to ask them? I mean, look at what's going on right now this week. You have President Obama at the UN today talking about the United States policy on Afghanistan and Pakistan. You have Secretary of State Hillary Clinton meeting with the President of Pakistan on that same day that an absolutely shocking report comes out about the consequences of what we are doing in Pakistan with the drones. You have the still developing story of a brand new drone strike in, drone strike in Pakistan yesterday that they tell us killed a senior al-Qaeda leader. but. Reports on these things often change after the fact, who knows? You have all of this stuff happening all at once. And you have a presidential campaign that's red hot. But the conversation in the presidential campaign when it comes to this stuff is, ah, hey, he seems like Jimmy Carter. I read that Jimmy Carter was a one-term president once, really? That's all you've got? How about this? What would you do differently? If the answer is, we'd be stronger, that's not an answer. We deserve a politics that is capable of giving us choices, or at least setting up a debate between competing, reasonable ideas about how to handle the most controversial things that our government does in our name. Our politics should be about the hard issues, not the stupid stuff. I know what the Obama administration's position is on Afghanistan, because he's the president and it's their policy. I have no idea what Mitt Romney would do differently on Afghanistan, if anything. 
I know what the Obama administration's position is on drones. I frankly find that position hair-raising. I have no idea what Mitt Romney would do differently on drones, if anything. I know what the Obama administration's position is on Pakistan. I know that Mitt Romney thinks Pakistan is very important. But is it inconceivable that somebody who can get an interview with Mitt Romney could ask him to explain why and how and what exactly his plans would be when it comes to that nuclear-armed country, how they feel about us right now? Politics is really all-engrossing and it can be really fun, but it should also move us some distance toward debate and decision-making on the hardest problems that we face as a country. That is not what we are getting from our politics right now. And if we're not getting it now, when are we going to get it? As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Russian Brass Balls News! Russian Brass Balls are a different kind of balls, Andy. <laughs> Sometimes they're even a concentric sequence of ornately painted hard balls, one inside the other. A few Googles ago, <laughs> we discussed the Russian punk band Pussy Riot, who had the metallic cojones to play an anti-Putin protest song in Moscow's main cathedral, and were consequently jailed on a charge of hooliganism and have been incarcerated ever since. The problem was that they tried to go ball to ball with Vladimir Putin. And that is a battle that many have fought and few have won. <laughs> yes, a bit variously described as the Russian banana-rama and uh, what would have happened if Miley Cyrus had been born 12 times in Russia and got into politics. Um, <laughs> Pussy Riot's uh, renowned for wearing brightly coloured balaclavas and doing uh, impromptu provocative performances about Russian political life in... Uh, unusual and uh, generally unauthorised locations, such as uh, the cathedral or on top of buses or in the metro, and uh, they then post these videos on the internet. And as you say, taking on Putin, John, that is, that, that is brave. They, they burst into uh, Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Saviour and uh, performed a track entitled Punk Prayer, Mother of God, Drive Putin Away. Now, I'm not a, a lyrics expert or a Russian expert, but I think the subtext of that song is they don't like Vladimir Putin, and they would like God's mummy to pop him in the back of her car and drive him away somewhere. Probably not to a nice holiday resort. Uh, however, this week the development is that a court in Moscow freed one of the women in the band, but upheld the two-year sentences for the other two. The freed woman won an appeal by claiming that she'd actually been thrown out of the cathedral by guards before she could even get her guitar out of its case to join in with the band's, as you say, punk prayer. That's a pretty bold defence, Andy, having your <laughs> defence statement essentially being, I was actually attempting to commit the bullshit crime that you're charging me of, <laughs> but you f***er stepped in before I could do it properly. So next time you want to stick me with a trumped-up charge, please, please allow me to commit it first. I rest my ballsy case. Uh, one of the women still in jail is Nadezhda Tolokhinokova, who was previously involved in another protest which involved five couples copulating in, in a museum whilst a man dressed as a stereotypical Jew <laughs> held up a big banner. Now, <laughs> that was... Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting form of protest, isn't it? Uh, that was performed by the Voina group, uh, responsible for an incident previously discussed on the Bugle where they painted a 50... Uh, a 65-metre-long wang on a bridge in St. Yep. Petersburg. I mean, was, was that art? I mean, it didn't have quite the artistic delicacy or anatomical accuracy of, say, one of Michelangelo's wangs, but to be fair, Michelangelo did paint a lot of wangs, and if you put them all together, which I'm not suggesting you do, they'd probably be about 65 metres long. Um, and another protest uh, by the Voina group involved a woman shoplifting a whole chicken by shoving it up her, well... Let's just say shoving it somewhere Mrs Pankhurst would not have dreamed of shoving a chicken and where <laughs> Martin Luther King would not have had the option of shoving a chicken were he so inclined. And I think both of those two legendary political campaigners 
might have also raised the legitimate query of exactly what political point you could possibly make by shoving a whole raw chicken up any part of the human anatomy. Maybe something to do with recycling or the sexualization of Sunday lunch. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> the Russian church said that the women's actions cannot be left unpunished, although it added that any penitence should be taken into consideration. Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev even stated that a suspended sentence would have been sufficient punishment for the band. All this was added to wave upon wave of support for the band from all over the world. But was Putin interested in any of that? Well, Andy, he's about as interested in that as he is not interested in flying at the front of a flock of migrating geese in a ludicrous <laughs> bird outfit. He defended the sentence, saying it's right that they were arrested. It's right that the court took that decision, because you can't undermine the foundations of morality, our moral values destroying the country. What would we be left with then? Andy, to make a statement like that, while simultaneously dismantling your country's democracy before everyone's <laughs> eyes and personally plundering its national resources like a modern-day Viking, takes brass balls so big they need to be constantly lubricated by being <laughs> constantly coated in a thin layer of oil to prevent them from rusting over. <laughs> it's like painting the fourth bridge. It just never exactly. stops. Never. One of the uh, Pussy Riot members uh, told the hearing, we are all innocent, the verdict should be overturned, that the Russian justice system looks discredited. To which the Russian justice system replied, we look discredited now, you think this is as f***ing discredited as we can get? Man, you don't even know you've been born! You do not know you've been born! Summer came like cinnamon, so sweet Little girls double dutch on the concrete Welcome to the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the Activism Czar at bestoftheleft.com. Last month, I discussed the events that led to the arrests and convictions of the punk group collective band known as Pussy Riot. Their arrest and trial over, quote, hooliganism motivated by religious hatred when the women performed an anti-Putin prayer song inside a Moscow cathedral generated significant international attention as the all-female group struggle put a face to political oppression against many left-leaning activist groups, especially ones that feature strong, independent women. Well, there's been an update to the case. Last time, we asked you to check out the site freepussyriot.org to help with the American Amnesty International petition in support of telling Russian officials and our ambassador that we value freedom of expression and demand their release. Unbelievably, one member, Yekaterina, was released on probation as her lawyer had earlier told the court that she had not performed the punk protest near the altar because she had been stopped and led away before it could take place. Meanwhile, the other two women's sentences were upheld, with them now awaiting exile to a prison colony labor camp outside of Moscow. The entire court proceedings have been marred by interference from Putin and religious officials. In a recent interview, Vladimir Putin defended the sentences by saying, quote, It is right that they were arrested, and it is right that the court took this decision, because you cannot undermine the fundamental morals and values to destroy the country. Yet it is clear that something else is going on. A Russian Orthodox patriarch had given Putin, then Prime Minister, unofficial but clear support in his successful campaign for a third presidential term, likening Putin's years in power to a, quote, miracle of God. And Kremlin opponents have said the jail terms were part of a clampdown on dissent that has produced restrictive laws in criminal cases against critics of Putin since he began his six-year term in May. So with some partial good and bad news, here is what you can do to continue to show your ongoing support of the two members still incarcerated and other foreign prisoners sharing similar fate. Please visit Amnesty International's American site found at amnestyusa.org and click on the Action tab to get involved with other human rights concerns. These might be plights of international prisoners, the death penalty, refugee and migrant rights, women's rights, and other forms of international justice. Likewise, you can still help Pussy Riot by visiting freepussyriot.org to continue to follow the ongoing events of their case. This has been a Best of the Left activism update. 
For more information about the link in this segment, please consult the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. Likewise, if you yourself have an activist call to action you want featured on the show, you can email me directly at lauren at bestoftheleft.com. And I feel like I'm some kind of Frankenstein Waiting for a shock to bring me back to life Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. I have good news and bad news for you guys about the Afghanistan war. The bad news is uh, the great number of deaths. Uh, We've actually finally reached 2,000 deaths in uh, Afghanistan, which is horrible. That's U.S. soldiers killed. Uh, In Iraq, it was 4,409, to give you a sense of perspective. And, uh, in fact, uh, five more dead today, three Afghans and two U.S., uh, one a contractor and one a soldier. And it was yet another uh, attack by Afghan soldiers turning on us. We can't tell if it was just a disagreement or, as happens often, it was the Taliban planting those guys in there to turn on us. Uh, Now let me give you more uh, perspective on the Afghanistan war. 17,644 have been wounded as well as the 2,000 dead you're seeing there. Uh, And 10,000 Afghan security forces have been killed. And a minimum of 20,000 civilian deaths. So it is really bad. Now, what's the good news? Well, it looks like we've had enough. And we might even leave earlier than we said we would in 2014. Now, why do I say that? Well, NATO's Secretary General gives me a couple of clues. First, he says, quote, from now until the end of 2014, you may see adaptation of our presence. That means we're going to change things. Our troops can redeploy, take on other tasks, or even withdraw, or we can reduce the number of foreign troops. That right there is huge, saying that we might leave earlier, basically, but he's not done. He continues, from now until the end of 2014, We will see announcements of redeployments, withdrawals, or drawdown. If the security situation allows, I would not exclude the possibility that in certain areas you could accelerate the process. In other words, whoever wants to stay, 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 whoever wants to run, 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 we're done with this thing. We got to get out of here even before 2014. We are losing all uh, approval for this war at home. It is true in Europe. It's also true in the United States of America. In fact, the top American commander there, John Allen, General John Allen, also livid about what is happening with the uh, Afghan troops turning on us. Watch. Well, I'm well. I'm mad as hell about him, to be honest with you. Um, we're going to get after this. Uh, it reverberates everywhere across the United States. You know, we're we're willing to sacrifice a lot for this campaign, but we're not willing to be murdered for it. Well, I'm mad as hell about him, to be honest with you. Now, wait a minute. They're soldiers. They die all the time, and I. It makes me sick, and that's why I don't want to be there anymore. But him saying we're not willing to be murdered for it is a weird turn of phrase. And, of course, he's referring to this attack on, from Afghans onto NATO and U.S. forces. And, basically, they're incredibly frustrated that the guys that we need to train up so we can leave are oftentimes hitting us in the back. He continues. Should Americans brace themselves for more attacks? Is this going to continue? It will. <clears throat> the enemy recognizes this as a vulnerability. You know, in, in Iraq, the signature weapon system that we hadn't seen before was the IED. We had to adjust to that. Here, I think the signature attack that we're beginning to see is going to be the insider attack. Well, the NATO Secretary General said that Commander John Allen's uh, point of view on this was very, very important, and uh, he might lead the process. Well, it looks like he's leading the process the hell out of there. 
because uh, this is really destroying morale. Look, three things that those uh, insider attacks do. Number one, they sow distrust between us and the Afghan troops that we're trying to build up. That's really smart. Number two, it makes it much easier to hit our soldiers when you pretend to be an Afghan soldier and then we give them a weapon and they're sitting right next to us. And number three, it destroys morale because we think, what are we training these guys up for if they turn around and murder us, as General John Allen just said. So it, the American people being fed up with this war wasn't enough. That, that oftentimes politicians, generals, defense contractors, etc., don't give a damn about that. The European people being fed up has more of an effect because they have a slightly different political system that is not as corrupted as the American system. Okay, but when even the top generals say, hey, you know what? I don't know what we're doing here. We're sitting ducks and all we're doing is getting murdered. You can sense the frustration and I think they've gotten to a point where they realize we're not going to quote unquote win. We don't even know what winning means. This is counterproductive. It's not helping our cause. We already got Bin Laden. There's less than 50 Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. It's time to pack up and go home. So as disastrous as this war has been, the good news is it looks like there's some chance it might end earlier than we suspected, which would be Terrific. We just passed the 11th anniversary of the Afghan war, 11 years. That's three times as long as the U.S. was in World War II and six times as long as the U.S. was in World War I. Let's look at the toll this war has taken. To avenge the loss of nearly 3,000 civilian lives in America on 9-11, the U.S. has now taken at least 7,000 civilian lives in Afghanistan. And we've lost more than 2,000 members of our armed services there, and more than 16,000 have been wounded, many of them catastrophically. Then there are the financial costs. This Afghan war has cost the U.S. $600 billion in out-of-pocket expenses, and we're still spending $2 billion a week there. And for what? Al-Qaeda's not in Afghanistan anymore, and bin Laden's dead. Nor are we there to prevent the Taliban from taking power and oppressing women again. Because our guy Karzai has endorsed an edict from Afghan's leading clerics that says it's okay for husbands to beat their wives under Sharia law. No, the U.S. is not still at war there to help the women of Afghanistan. We're at war there to help the empire of the U.S. And that's not a legitimate reason for letting 2,000 U.S. service members perish or for killing 7,000 Afghan civilians. This 11-year war must end, and it must end now. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it. Like a ship without an anchor, like a slave without a chain. Just a thought of those who the leaders, and the two out there who my biggest. And I will go on shining, shining like brand new. I'll never look behind me, my troubles will be few. Another massive set of clanking brass balls has been displayed by the 14-year-old Pakistani schoolgirl Malala Yousafzai, who was shot and critically wounded by the Taliban uh, after calling for education for girls, which you might not think is you know, too outlandish uh, in most countries, but it's not really the kind of thing that the Taliban go on for. And it does, it does seem that the Taliban, by storming onto a bus full of schoolchildren and shooting a 14-year-old girl and two of her classmates... Uh, have still not fully mastered the delicate art of public relations. They are, John, increasingly hard to warm to as a political organisation, the Taliban. They just don't seem really into grown-up discussions, compromise, acceptance of other people's views. I mean, clearly what they should have done, they should have sat 
little Malala down and explain to her why it makes sound social and economic sense to ban television, to ban music, to remove all education for girls, to ban women from shopping, and also to explain to her why violence, hatred and terrorism are the best way forward for everyone in her region and how targeted and random slayings are a perfectly reasonable way to resolve disagreements. Then allowed her to have her say, a little bit of give and take, and try to reach a satisfactory compromise, and then just had a drink and a laugh about why they disagreed so much in the first place, and why they thought it was a good idea to blow up more than a hundred girls' schools. But the Taliban just aren't into that kind of compromise, John, so that did not happen. That's right, the Taliban are at best stubborn, and at worst <laughs> I think the, the events of the last week have proven they're probably right in the middle. They are stubborn It's <laughs> amazing. This little Pakistani schoolgirl, she's been uh, writing a diary for the last three years online about living life under the Taliban. She was 11 when she first started writing the blog for uh, BBC Urdu, uh, which dealt with life under the Taliban rule in her hometown of Mingora in the northwestern uh, region of Pakistan, which she affectionately calls My Swat. Now, life for an 11-year-old girl there is, to put it mildly, f***ing shit. Although, she would probably state it much more elegantly than that. In one diary <laughs> entry, she writes of the threats made against young girls who continue to try and attend her school, saying, I was afraid of going to school because the Taliban issued an edict banning all girls from attending schools. Only 11 students attended the class out of 27. The number decreased because of the Taliban's edict. On my way from school to home, I heard a man saying, I will kill you. I hastened my pace. To my utter relief, he was talking on his mobile and must have been threatening someone else over the phone. I guess that's what passes for a funny story for children in the Swat Valley at the moment, Andy, but it's absolutely chilling. There are three <laughs> facts here. Fact one, this girl is amazing, and it's well worth reading her diary entries online. Fact two, the Taliban are a shower of pricks. And fact three, <laughs> this little girl has some of the biggest, brassiest balls in the known universe. Uh, the surgery so far to remove the bullet from her brain uh, seems to have been something of a success, and that is hardly a surprise, because the girl is f incredible. <laughs> She's absolutely amazing. And I'm sure all buglers would join us in wishing her and her brass balls all the best. Yeah, her father's also an anti-Taliban activist, so it clearly runs in the family. And as you say, she started taking pops at the Taliban, aged 11. Now, it's fair to say she's displayed rather more courage than the average 11-year-old, certainly yes. than the 11-year-old Andy Zaltzman. The bravest thing I ever did when I was 11 was attempt to stop the civil war in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Oh, no, hang on, it wasn't that. No, the bravest thing I ever did was read Cricketer Graham Gooch's autobiography, which <laughs> did contain coded messages ur urging a long-term peace agreement in the DRC, to be fair. The uh, Pakistani tal Taliban uh, said that uh, Malala, quotes, is the symbol of the infidels and obscenity. And, I mean, aside from anything else, this is just factually wrong. If you want infidels and obscenity, Taliban, just pop on the internet for five minutes and you will find bigger fish to fry. They also <laughs> added that... If she survived, they would target her again. Oh, oh, big men! Big men! You bravely hunt down those little girls. You bravely hunt them down. You are giving your press officer absolutely nothing to work with. It is so hard to put a positive spin on that. And your action movies, Taliban, must be an absolute blast. The Taliban version of, of Gladiator, for example, ending with Maximus smashing the crap out of 12-year-old Cornelia, shouting, Take <laughs> that on behalf of your gender. I The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Let's 
We noticed this opening to an ABC World News report from anchor David Muir. Quote, overseas now to Afghanistan and a stark reminder tonight of the human cost of war. Close quote. When you hear corporate media talk about the human cost of war, you can bet they are about to tell you about American soldiers who died. And that's what this report was about, the 2000th U.S. troop death in Afghanistan. Of course, humans die nearly every day in that war, but media rarely take note of the humanity of certain victims. We don't need to search very far to find a counterexample. On the very same show two weeks earlier, viewers were told about a NATO airstrike that killed eight Afghan women who had been out collecting firewood. How did ABC report those deaths? In all of one sentence, stuffed at the end of a report about U.S. troop deaths. Viewers were told it was an incident that is causing tension. Last year, in a very similar incident, a NATO airstrike killed nine boys. ABC's very brief report was not about their humanity. It was about Afghan President Ahmed Karzai's harsh words for the U.S. in response. Imagine a media that treated human life equally. Imagine it because we sure don't have anything close to it. War on Terror, ladies and gentlemen. You remember that? Well, um, now we're what? In year 11? And um, the Republicans on uh, television, on the act shows this morning, Sunday morning, uh, are hammering the Obama administration for the events in Libya. Libya, oh, Libya. Uh, And particularly saying that uh, the the original story on um, the Benghazi incident, which resulted in the assassination of four Americans, including our ambassador to Libya, um, the original ex- explanation brought forward by the administration, which was that this was a, a result of demonstrations against that stupid trailer of a film, Innocence of Muslims, um was a soft peddling of what the administration knew or should have known, which was that this was, as the administration has itself later admitted, a terrorist attack, a well-armed, well-planned terrorist attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi. The Republican attack then goes on to say that the administration is doing this because they would like to pretend, that, that, that as Daryl Issa said, um, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something that's not Republican. This was a mission-accomplished moment where the administration is trying to pretend that uh, they've won. And yet al-Qaeda is still active, he says, that, that this attack in Benghazi represents that. What he did not go on to say, what nobody goes on to say is, maybe after 11 years, the war model of fighting terrorism has been proven not to work, two wars, and if they're still active, maybe an empirical analysis would say, uh, the way the uh, Germans and the Italians fought terrorism in the 1970s was, I don't know, maybe, empirical, who knows. Ladies and gentlemen, anyway, the war on terror goes on. In a motion unsealed last week, the United States government proposed new ground rules for, oh, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. That would be, that would be the punchline. First, there's this. They're supposed to be one of the centerpieces of our counterterrorism strategy, according to the Secretary of Homeland Security. These are the DHS's 70-plus fusion centers, places where state, local, and federal law enforcement analyze and share information. The Senate's Bipartisan Committee on Investigations found no evidence that they uncovered a single terrorist threat between April 1, 2009 and April 30, 2010. During that time, the FBI discovered a uh, subway attacker, a major, killed 13 people at Fort Hood, a guy tried to blow up a Detroit-bound airplane, 
and somebody attempted to detonate an SUV in Times Square. The fusion centers didn't uncover any of this. DHS has pla- praised the fusion centers' work. The Senate found fusion centers played little, if any, role in the cases. Nor, the Senate panel writes in its just-released report, according to Wired, could, uh, analyzing more than 80,000 fusion center documents, could the inquiry identify a contribution such fusion center ex- reporting made to disrupt an active terrorist plot. Unnamed DHS officials told the panel the fusion centers produce, quote, predominantly useless information and, quote, a bunch of crap, unquote. Well, that's what gives the parts of the men's room. I'm not going to sponsor a bad name. An internal 2010 assessment, which the uh, Department of Homeland Security did not share with Congress, found that a third of all the fusion centers don't have defined procedures for sharing intelligence, which is one of the prime reasons for their existence. At least four fusion centers identified by the Department of Homeland Security do not exist, according to the Senate report. Where are those fusion centers? We lost their, they rolled under the, they're behind the couch, they rolled under the thing. Those that do are hives of incompetence, bureaucracy, mission creep, you remember him, he hangs around, and possible civil liberties abuses. Despite instituting privacy protections, the Senate report says DHS continued to store troubling intelligence reports from fusion centers on U.S. persons, possibly in violation of the Privacy Act. A third of reviewed reports from these centers lacked, quote, any useful information on terrorism or they possibly violated civil liberties. Other reports sat for months until their information was obsolete by the time it was published. Instead of focusing on terrorism, quote, most information from the centers was about ordinary crimes such as drug, cash, or human smuggling, according to the report. Fusion centers are only supposed to analyze and spread information not collected along the way. They scooped up items like a leaflet for the Mongols Motorcycle Club in California telling bikers to be courteous to police. Five centers the Senate studied spent their federal terrorism grant money on hidden shirt-button cameras, cell phone tracking systems, and on things like dozens of flat-screen TVs and SUVs, claiming that Chevrolet Tahoes were intended to help respond to chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and explosive incidents. The DHS doesn't appear to care how it spends its cash. The Senate inquiry determined that Homeland Security was unable to produce a complete and accurate tally of the expense of its support. For fusion centers, its estimates range between $289 million and $1.4 billion. Nice range. DHS, therefore, doesn't even know how much money it's spent on what it calls a centerpiece of its counterterrorism strategy. But, you know, centerpieces are overrated. Go for, look at the periphery. Also, in this uh, struggle, let's look for a moment at the new Iraq. You remember Iraq? Uh, Fallujah, or as I call it, Fallujah, uh, was host to one of the bloodiest battles of the Iraq War. Its residents changed the name of their city from City of Mosques to the Polluted City after the United States had two massive military campaigns there. Now, one month before the World Health Organization reveals its view on the legacy of those two battles, the Independent on Sunday newspaper in London reports a staggering rise in birth defects among Iraqi children conceived in the aftermath of the war. High rates of miscarriage, toxic levels of lead and mercury contamination, spiraling numbers of birth defects ranging from congenital heart defects to brain dysfunctions and malformed limbs have been recorded. Even more disturbingly, they appear to be occurring at an increasing rate in children born in Fallujah. There is compelling evidence to link the increased numbers of defects, defects and miscarriages to military assaults, says Mosgan Savabis Fahani, one of the lead authors of the report and an environmental toxicologist at the University of Michigan. Similar defects have been found among children born in Basra after British troops invaded there, according to the same research. New findings published in the Environmental Contamination and Toxicology Bulletin will bolster claims that U.S. and NATO munitions used in the conflict led to a widespread health crisis in Iraq. Why Why do they hate us? They are latest in a series of studies that have suggested a link between bombardment and a rise in birth defects. This prompted a World Health Organization inquiry. Their report will be out next month. The latest study found in Fallujah, more than half of all babies surveyed were born with a birth defect between 2007 and 2010. Before the siege, that was 1 in 10. 
prior to the turn of the millennium, fewer than 2% of babies were born with a defect. More than 45% of all pregnancies surveyed ended in miscarriage in the two years after the bombing, up from only 10% before. Between 2007 and 2010, one in six of all pregnancies ended in miscarriage. That'll keep the population of Iraqi. The new research, which looked at the health histories of 56 families in Fallujah, also examined births in Basra. The uh, authors linked the rising number of babies born with birth defects in the two cities to increased exposures to metals released by bombs and bullets used over the past two decades. They found the levels of lead were five times higher in the hair of children with birth defects and other children. Mercury levels were six times higher. Children with defects in Basra had three times more lead in their teeth than children living in non-impacted areas. The lead researcher said for the first time there's a footprint of metal in the population, compelling evidence linking the staggering increases in Iraqi birth defects to neurotoxic metal contamination. She called the epidemic a public health crisis. You are so welcome, Iraq. (laughs) No need. Uh, And now, finally, in the war on terror, we're still not supposed to know what we know, even though we know it. In a motion unsealed last week, the U.S. government proposed new ground rules for classified information in the trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four others charged with the 9-11 attacks. The new order says the accused cannot talk about their observations and experiences of being held by the CIA, including, quote, the enhanced interrogation techniques that were applied to the accused, unquote. That is, waterboarding. The government maintains many details of the CIA's detention program are still classified despite widespread disclosures and an official acknowledgement by President Bush in 2006. Quote, due to these individuals' exposure to classified sources, methods, or activities of the United States, an order filed in April read, anything the men say, the suspects, is, quote, presumed to contain information classified as top secret, unquote. So they can't say that they were... (laughs) But I can say this. Well, it may not be legal, but it sure as heck makes me safer. And it may not yield useful intel, at least that's what they say. But it's a pleasure, so... Classified. Let's go. It's not torture if I say it ain't. Those conventions are so old and quaint. Go for it. Terrorists are gonna have some fun. Keep America number one. So water do what we say we never ever do. No way. Let's go. surfing cause you can't get off if you want to and it's really hard work but for us it feels much more like play Suspects.
campaigning in Ohio today. Mitt Romney told a story he has recently become very fond of telling on the campaign trail. It's about a young man he met once at a party. One was a, a former uh, Navy SEAL uh, and uh, Glenn Doherty, and he, and he uh, uh, we chatted for a while. He, uh, he came from Massachusetts, where I'd been governor, and uh, had family there. Uh, he also uh, had skied in some of the places, snow skiing, that I had found uh, during the Winter Olympics in Utah that I'd skied at, and uh, we had a nice chat together. Man, Mr. Romney is talking about there is Glenn Doherty. Glenn Doherty is the former Navy SEAL who was one of the four Americans killed in the attack on the American consulate in Benghazi in Libya in September. Mr. Romney told that same story about meeting Mr. Doherty. Uh, he told it again yesterday while he was campaigning in Iowa. He skied a lot. He skied in some of the places I had, and we had a lot of things in common. Uh, he told me that he kept, keeps going back to the Middle East. He cares very deep, deeply about the people there. You can imagine how I felt when I found out that he was one of the two former Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi on September 11th. And uh, it, uh, it touched me, obviously, as I recognized this young man that I thought was so impressive. He, uh, according to the reports on CNN International that I read, he was actually in a different building, in an annex, a safe place somewhere else across town, when he and his colleagues there heard that the uh, consulate was under attack. And they went there. They didn't hunker down where they were in safety. They rushed there to go help. This is the American way. We go where there's trouble. We go where we're needed. And right now we're needed. Right now the American people need us. Politicians repeat the same stories on the campaign trail all the time. That is not what is uncomfortable making about what Mr. Romney is doing here. It's not the repetition that is the issue. Well, part of the problem is here is Mr. Romney equating his running for office with the bravery Mr. Doherty had displayed trying to save lives in the face of the armed attack in Benghazi. Right now, the American people need us, he said. After talking about all these other things that he had in common with Mr. Doherty, like Massachusetts and skiing, he compares what he's doing now with what Mr. Doherty did in Benghazi. They didn't hunker down where they were in safety. They rushed there to go help. This is the American way. We go where there's trouble. We go where we're needed. And right now we're needed. Right now the American people need us. If you think it takes the same kind of bravery for this guy to run for president as it was brave of this former Navy SEAL to respond the way he did to an RPG and mortar attack in Libya, then this was maybe an inspiring moment for you in Iowa. Otherwise, it is probably something else. Since it's become clear that this was going to now be a repetitive standard part of Mr. Romney's stump speech, Glenn Doherty's friends and family have begun speaking out against Mitt Romney and the Romney campaign for using Mr. Doherty on the campaign trail in this way. An old friend of Mr. Doherty's gave an interview to a Seattle radio station yesterday giving what he said was Glenn Doherty's take on that meeting he had with Mr. Romney at that party. His friend said Mr. Doherty told him that Mr. Romney kept introducing himself to Doherty over and over again, forgetting that he had just met him, and that Mr. Doherty found that pathetic. I think the ultimate count by the end of the night was four times. Romney actually approached him using this private gathering as basically a political venture to, to further his image. And uh, Glenn just uh, believed it to be very insincere and stale. You know, he said it was pathetic and comical to have the same person come up to you within only, you know, a half hour, uh, reintroduce himself to you, having absolutely no idea whatsoever that he just did this 20 minutes ago and did not even recognize Glenn's face, whether it be Republican Democrat, Green Party, liber, uh, Libertarian, it doesn't make a difference. This guy is using our great friend, our humble and honorable great friend that we know is just a regular guy who is truly larger than life. He has become an actual part of the soapbox routine for politics in a presidential race. I think Glenn would feel more than anything almost embarrassed for Romney. I think he would feel pity for him. I should also note that Glenn Doherty's mother, Barbara, has released a statement uh, to a local Boston 
TV station, quote, I don't trust Romney. He shouldn't make my son's death part of his political agenda. It's wrong to use these brave young men who wanted freedom for all to degrade Obama. After Mr. Romney persisted in telling the story about Glenn Doherty yet again after that statement from Mr. Doherty's mother was released, a reporter at BuzzFeed today pressed the Romney campaign about whether or not Mr. Romney was going to keep this as part of his stump speech despite the objections. Then the campaign relented, saying Mr. Romney had been inspired by that meeting, but, quote, we respect the wishes of Mrs. Doherty, though. Uh, since before the attack was even over in Benghazi, the Romney campaign has tried and tried and tried to make some political hay out of it, to take political advantage of the fatal attack on the American consulate in Libya. It started before the attack was over, before American deaths had been confirmed there. It has continued with Mr. Romney's efforts to loop into his campaign now. One of the Americans killed in that attack is a sort of unwilling political surrogate after he's died. The man's friends and family finally appeared to have put a stop to that today. But the effort to politicize this attack, to get partisan advantage out of this attack on an American interest, and the death of four Americans abroad, is also happening now in Washington, where a congressman who is a Romney surrogate, Utah's Jason Chaffetz, uh, convened this hearing today in Washington. The House is not actually even in session right now, but Jason Chaffetz of Utah says he had to step in to ensure more security in Benghazi, more resources for diplomatic missions. I believe, personally, with more assets, more resources, just meeting the minimum standards, we could have and should have saved the life of Ambassador Stevens and the other people that were there. Republican Congressman Jason Chaffetz speaking at this hearing today. You should also note that this is Jason Chaffetz, the same guy, speaking in an interview today on CNN. Watch. Is it true that you voted to, re, uh, to cut the funding for embassy security? Oh, absolutely. Look, we have to make priorities and choices in this country. We have, think about this, 15,000 contractors in uh, Iraq. We have more than 6,000 contractors, a private army there for President Obama in Baghdad. And we're talking about can we get two dozen or so people into Libya to help protect our forces? When you're in tough economic times, you have to make difficult choices. Okay, you have but, to prioritize so, things. So I, okay, so you're prioritizing. So when there yep. are complaints, that in fact that there was not enough security you've just said absolutely that that mm -hmm. you cut you you were the one to vote against you know to, to increase security for the state department which would lead directly to benghazi that seems like you're saying no. you have a hand in the responsibility to this right the funding of the security if you're happy to cut it you get you get it but because there are there are literally a, a close to 200 embassies, consulates, those types of things, you have thousands of people that are involved in this, you have to prioritize things. And he voted to cut it. What the CNN anchor Soledad O'Brien is referring to there uh, is that House Republicans, including Mr. Chaffetz, cut the administration's request for embassy security funding by $128 million last year and $331 million this year. That was over and above the objections of the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, who warned that the Republicans' proposed cuts would be detrimental to America's national security. Republicans said, nah, they didn't mind. They would not. They did not think those things would hurt national security. And now, 27 days before the election, they are holding grandstanding hearings about under-resourced security where there ended up being an attack. On any given day, politics has an ick factor, right? This is grosser than usual. Hi, Jay. It's Jason from the vast cornfields of Iowa. I just want to touch a little bit on Heather's comment in her voicemail about climate change. Sometimes the fear is actually a good motivating factor. Like the fear of the fact that we know that the, the as you say, Florida will become a chain of islands. That those facts that we know sometimes are a great motivating factor to get things done. We were talking about the death of polar bears and, and the end of the species as we know it and the and the warming of the climates in the 80s when we were banning uh, CFCs as propellants in, like, hairsprays and such. And now we're even starting to phase out CFC refrigerants, which I, I'm an HVAC technician. I should know this stuff. We're phasing out. There will be no more new um, 
R22 refrigerant, as it's referred to, for most, and most people have that in their air conditioners, so most people will actually not be able to get any new refrigerant for their system after that point. But the, the reason why that was done was because of the Clean Energy Act and the clean air bills and the, the, the fight to stop global warming, which is why certain refrigerants won't be made anymore and we're trying to change them out to newer systems and things like that. But I think fear is an excellent motivating factor, but it also has to be used in moderation. It must be used in moderation because then you get to the issue of people just sticking their heads in the sand saying, I don't believe your facts because they don't line up with mine. And then when they turn off Fox News, they realize, oh, shit, I was wrong, and now this person's right. We need to do something. Just wanted to kind of touch base with you on that, Jay. Just want to throw in my two cents. Thanks always for the excellent shows. Um, keep playing Lee Camp. That guy always cracks me the hell up. Thanks a lot, Jay. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland. I have a response uh, from the last voicemail from uh, Jim from St. Augustine. He was talking about his views on legalizing marijuana, and he finished his uh, opinion with his idea that the left is full of hypocrites because they will be, you know, the pot industry will turn into a, a corporate conglomerate, and it'll be evil, and we'll hate it then. So he calls us hypocrites. And he said very broadly, like it's very, you know, it's very common in the left. You know, that really troubles me. He says that, you know, if you support legalization, you support free market capitalism, and it makes you a hypocrite. You could be a progressive and still believe in capitalism. What makes us progressive is not believing in unfettered capitalism. Which, again, maybe he needed that made clearer to him. And, uh... Also, his previous view about the schools, I responded back to that talking about my own son with autism and uh, pointing out that the, the teachers' unions had nothing to do with how these special needs children are taught. Apparently, even though I question his statements and try to present some facts, it's obvious that facts are unimportant to conservatives. There's my wide brush statement about conservatives to answer his wide brush statement about progressives. Anyway, I just find it kind of saddening that, uh, you know, typical conservative uh, trolling move is you get your voice onto some media outlet, you speak a false or misinformed viewpoint, and then you never answer back to being called out on the charges, you move on to the next topic. I mean, it's just, it's it's sad. I mean, I would like to honestly have an open discussion with this guy. I mean, if he wants to talk more about it on the voicemails, it'd be great. Instead of just moving on to the next topic and trying to call, trying to say that if you're progressive, you believe in absolute socialism. You know, conservatives are not that simple, just like we progressives are not that simple. There are varying degrees of each. And to think that each of us falls under one blanket term like oh you're a conservative oh you're a liberal oh you're this no many many of us people have a wide range of views and we're not this pigeonholed one aspect person and that those kinds of statements just they don't advance the conversation at all and that's really what we need to do is to really talk more less about opinions and more about facts and understand that, you know, we honestly are a lot more like each other than any of us want to admit. And it's just sad that, you know, these kind of statements still make it onto the show, make it onto any show. And it's just, you know, I just wish some people would grow up. Love the show, Jake. Hey, Jay, this is Victor from Poughkeepsie, New York. I'm a couple episodes behind, but I want to throw out some comments about the war on marijuana. Everyone likes to talk about taxing marijuana to help the economy, but I have a different spin on marijuana helping the economy. We are paying top dollar for a weed that can grow anywhere. Growing marijuana is very easy, especially with the new efficient light bulbs. So my question is, what would millions of smokers do with their savings if they were allowed to grow their own? In the closet, yard, porch, whatever. My guess is most of that money would be spent in the local economy. 
definitely not going to Mexican drug lords. I have another point. Marijuana is a gateway to other drugs. But it is not the drug. It is our policies that make it a gateway. For instance, after years of being told that marijuana was just as bad as all other drugs, many, many, many years ago, a friend and I finally broke down and tried some. We had many thoughts, of course, but one stuck out. It was this. I bet heroin and cocaine isn't that bad either. So, it's the lie of classifying marijuana the same as all illegal drugs that may encourage someone to open the gates to the other drugs. That's all I got. Keep up the great work. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So this is the point in the show where I would normally have something informative or interesting or insightful or inspiring to talk about, uh, but then sometimes I don't, and this is one of those times. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone who supports the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the show. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out